The, the winner is Sydney, Australia. An Olympics podcast coming to you today for a very, very special episode, a bonus episode, two episodes in a week. It's been a while since we've done that, particularly back-to-back episodes. I don't think we've done back-to-back day episodes since the Beijing Olympics, but it's a special occasion to be doing that today. Today in history for Australia and the Olympics is a big one because on the 23rd of September 1993, Sydney was announced as the host of the 2000 Olympics. 30 years on, we're here to celebrate the occasion with a man who was incredibly involved in that bit, helped get the Olympics to Sydney. That is the one, the only, Bob Elphinstone. Now, you're going to hear me give a massive introduction here to Bob in just a moment. I'm not going to go over his resume right now, but let's just say... He's been heavily involved in the Olympics, not only with the Sydney Olympic bid, but outside of that. He was involved in the 2008 and 2012 Olympic bids. He served as an advisor for the IOC. He's worked with the AOC. He's been so involved in the Olympics that he was awarded the Olympic order by Juan Antonio Samaranch after the Sydney Olympics. There's a lot to get through in this interview and again, a lot in his resume alone, which you will hear me go over. But Bob talks at length about the Sydney Olympic bid, what it took to get it over the line, how there were roots of this bid as late back as the 70s, the learnings from the failed Brisbane and Melbourne Olympic bids in the lead up to Sydney ultimately being awarded the 2000 Olympics, and his take on the Brisbane Olympic bid, and just whether or not he may or may not be involved in it. There's even discussion here around the Hobart Olympics, because of course you know I'm going to bring that up, and some other aspects around Australia and the Olympics and the Olympic movement and bidding in general. This is a fascinating chat that you're going to get so much out of, and it's a magnificent time to be an Olympic fan in Australia to celebrate this anniversary today. So sit back, relax, and listen to our chat with Sydney Olympics 2000 Bid Company General Manager, Bob Elphinstone. September 23rd, 1993, Sydney was awarded the 2000 Summer Olympic Games. Crowds flocked to live sites all around Sydney for the 4am announcement and were sent into hysterics on hearing those four mortal words uttered by IOC President Juan Antonio Samaranch, the winner is Sydney. Or of course, as he said it, the winner is Sydney. 
Seven years later, Sydney went on to host what were described as the best Olympics ever by Summer Ranch and put Sydney firmly on the map as one of the most iconic cities in the world. And on the 30th anniversary of that famous day in Australian history, what better way to celebrate it than with a man who was front and centre of the Sydney 2000 Olympic bid, Bob Elphinstone. Now, Bob served as the general manager for the Sydney Olympics 2000 bid company, position he was appointed in 1991 and was a driving factor in ensuring that the bid went on to be a successful one. And outside of his involvement in that bid, he's got an esteemed Olympics resume. During the Sydney Olympics, he served as SOCOG's general manager of sport, was directly responsible for the smooth running of all 28 sports, overseeing things such as the competitioning, the scheduling, services, among many other things. And he was awarded the Olympic Order by President Samaranch after those Olympics for his services to the Games. And outside of that, served for the IOC, working as uh, on the Evaluation Commission and assisting the selection of both the 2008 and 2012 Olympic cities. Also served with the Australian Olympic Committee as a Director of Sport and Operations and Secretary General. And also was a manager for the Boomers back in the 1984 Olympics. Of course, has a heavily involved career in the sport of basketball too. Overall, Bob's attended five Summer Olympics, three Winter Olympics, left a lasting legacy in the Olympic Games, not only in Australia, but around the entire world. And it is an absolute pleasure right now to be able to welcome him to Off the Podium. Bob, I got through it all. There you go. Welcome to the program. (laughs) Thanks, Ben. Yes, it's all my distant memories now, but but beautiful memories. I mean, uh, I often talk about the 10 years that I spent on the Sydney Bid and the Olympic Games. The best 10 years of my life that will never, ever be equal again in my opportunities. So, uh, wonderful memories. And uh, thanks for having the opportunity to talk to you about it. Well, it's an absolute pleasure because it's hard to believe 30 years that this Games was announced to the world. But I want to obviously go back a little bit before that actual day to talk a little bit around the bid and everything involved that because Sydney itself, this wasn't sort of the first time that the idea of an Olympics was floated. Of course, in the 70s, this idea was floated for Sydney to host an Olympics ultimately for the 1988 Olympics, never went through. Then Australia unsuccessfully bid for Brisbane, 1992, Melbourne for 1996, third time lucky with Sydney. Your involvement in the bid, Bob, obviously you had a bit to do with basketball and some other sport managerial roles. How did this role for you to jump on the Australian getting the Olympic bid bandwagon, did it come about for yourself? It actually started uh, back in, uh, I'd say, 1979, uh, Ben, because... I was working for the uh, New South Wales Department of Sport and Recreation. And at the time, uh, Neville Rand, the then Premier, uh, was interested in looking at whether Sydney should bid for the 1988 Olympic Games and put together a very small team of six persons from within government. And I was the one that was given responsibility from a sports perspective to be part of that team. So I worked on that plan for six months. And involving even in those days with John Coates, Bill Coles, people like that, to assess whether Sydney was capable of hosting the games. Now, Neville ran quite correctly, ultimately said, no, Sydney will not bid for the 88 Olympics because as it turned out, we only had three venues that were appropriate for the 23 sports we needed at the time. But the good thing was, out of that failed attempt, I suppose, or consideration came the recognition that the government needed to spend money on sports facilities. So I then got the job of overseeing the development of the State Sports Centre, which was the embryo of Sydney Olympic Park, Homebush Bay, the old uh, abattoir corporation. And of course, at the same time, we saw the Sydney Football Stadium built. We saw the Sydney Entertainment Centre built. And out of that came the opportunity. Interestingly, 
There were only two bidders at the time in 88, and that was um, in Korea uh, and Nagoya, and also, and they were in rack and ruin at the time, you might recall, in the, in the, in the 80s, that Korea was in a state of huge conflict. And uh, ultimately, and I was told later by different Olympic Committee members that had Sydney bid, we would have won it. Wow. But, of course, but the important thing was that we wouldn't have been able to deliver because we just didn't have the venues. So out of that came uh, my role with government of developing the international sports facilities and the embryonic development of Sydney Olympic Park through the State Sports Centre, where I became responsible for that organisation, but also I then became the director of that. And from there progressed through to I was then invited to join the bid team in 1991 that was the catalyst for things to move forward fantastic good to hear that sort of legacy that even though sort of the seeds were sown in the 70s that that sort of was an initial stepping stone to create facilities for sydney that would ultimately help towards the 2000 bid because homebush was always considered a site was it not of where this could potentially be where a lot of venues could be built yes because importantly uh it was, of course, the site of the original abattoirs and other and brick and brickworks there, and both those industries needed to be virtually closed down, and the whole site, which was close to the demographic centre of Sydney, could be transformed into whatever the purpose might be. I mean, sitting on you know, Homebush Bay on the edge of the Sydney Harbour, it was so well located in so many ways. So, as I said, the State Sports Centre became the first venue built there. Ultimately, the the idea of Sydney Showground, the Royal Agricultural Society moved out there and it then provided the opportunity when the bid was being developed to think well, we could have the Olympic Stadium there and in particular the Olympic Aquatic Centre. And so the commitment of the government at the time, led by Nick Griner at that time, was to build the Aquatic Centre and show how serious we were about wanting to host the Olympic Games. And in terms of the Olympics at that point in time, of course, prior maybe to about 1984, there was a lot of, I guess, negativity around bidding for Olympics. A lot of Olympics were losing money. LA sort of changed that and made almost the Olympics sort of more of a let's bid for them type again. Was a lot of that around worrying around sort of those initial phases of Sydney bidding for 1988 that also was a bit of a concern considering how the Olympics were at that point in history? There was because the the model for the Olympic Games at the time showed that there was a huge cost to the government and not, not a lot of financial return. But clearly the, the model for the Olympics was progressively changing. And I have to give credit in particular to John Coates, who of course was the long-standing president of the Australian Olympic Committee, who created the whole new concept that not only could the Games be a success and provide a legacy through benefits, uh, through the venues, but importantly it also could provide a financial legacy through the long-term benefits that would be bestowed on the host city. And that was the rationale for developing Sydney Olympic Park, the sports facilities there, a whole new village in what is now known as Newington was created as part of the athletes village. And so it was a very successful model. In terms of the mood around the bid when you joined, because as I mentioned, Brisbane had unsuccessfully bid for 92, Melbourne unsuccessfully for 1996. So obviously the AOC in Australia were very keen to get an Olympics in Australia, obviously continuing in that. But was there a case of still buoyancy mood, the different city, different approach for bidding an Olympics, sort of John Coates' mood going into it after the two failures that we had seen from Brisbane and Melbourne? Well, as you know, there's always been 
great rivalry between Sydney and Melbourne. And that occurred within the Olympic movement within Australia as well, where Kevin Cosper, the, uh, the dominant Olympic Committee member from Melbourne, was always very strongly pushing Melbourne. And, of course, John Coates, supported by Phil Coles, both Sydney residents and members of the IOC, was strongly wanting to see Sydney step up. And Sydney hadn't, at that point of time, ever really done much about wanting to be a leader in sports facilities across Australia. But John Coates was able to convince Nick Griner, the then Premier, to that it was worth a go. And importantly, it was winnable. And that the legacy would be, importantly, not just about sports venues, but a whole new way of life by way of the athletes' village, uh, dramatically improved transport infrastructure, and a whole new way of life amongst the citizens of Sydney and, and the state. In terms of when you have that initial meeting, is there? Do you have memories of kind of like, okay, this is the task we've got ahead of us. This is how we're gonna we're gonna win it. Everything you're just touching on there of how you approach it. I mean, do you remember sort of getting into a room with everybody for the first time and kind of just planning out that roadmap for the bit? I certainly remember those days very very well, Ben. And uh, I mean, a lot of the credit is a bit also goes to Rod McGill, who was the chief executive, the CEO. And uh, he was a prominent Sydney lawyer. And I always remember the day he was appointed to his front-page story in the Sydney Morning Herald saying, Mr. Olympics, who is he? Does anyone know? <laughs> Turned out that he was an incredible driving force and a uh, very inspirational leader. So I worked as his deputy. And, uh, and he led the bid and, and worked with John Coates, uh, Gosper and Coles. And Bruce Baird came in as the minister responsible from the New South Wales government. And that was the team that formed the strategy and the, the strategy committee, uh, chaired by Bruce Baird, met every week looking at what the strategy might be because we needed to get the votes of at least half of the IOC membership. It was roughly uh, 90 members at the time, so we had to get at least 46 votes. And most of the IOC members had never, ever been to Sydney. So it was a real challenge. I loved, there was a, a special that was done on Channel 7, I believe, sort of in the lead up to the bid announcement, which is available on YouTube. It's a fascinating watch. There's interviews with yourself, there's interviews with Rod, there's interviews with so many different people involved in the bid. But you said in that interview about Rod that his idea was to meet with those IOC members at least a minimum of 15 times to try and get them on side, which was a fantastic quote. And you sort of said... I didn't know if Rod had done it, but I'm pretty sure he's close to doing it. Did he ever kind of say to you that I did end up meeting with 15 or more? Because that's a lot of people to meet with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the strategy was exactly that, was to meet with every IOC member, but importantly, establish a small coterie, I guess, of IOC members who would become virtually spokesmen for the Sydney bid in an unofficial way. And we we're very fortunate that, in, that the New South Wales government, again, pushed by... Uh, John Coates bid for and won the right to host what was then known as the GAFE Congress. The GAFE Congress is the meeting of all the world's sporting bodies. And that was in Sydney in 1991. And that gave us a, le a legitimate reason to have at least 15 IOC members who were officials also within their respective sporting bodies come to Sydney which was totally within the rules of the IOC, and we showered them, of course, with extraordinary hospitality. The weather was kind. The meetings were held at Darling Harbour in the big meeting conference rooms down there, and uh, that was the start of a very successful strategy. You'd also mentioned that 
same special that it was also a plan to attend every major sporting event around the world essentially within that two-year period to the bid announcement. What were some of those events that you went to and how were they in helping sway the Olympics to come to Sydney? Yes, well, the strategy, as you say, was, was twofold. One was that Rod McGeoch with John Coates, Phil Coles, Kevin Gosper, Bruce Baird would travel to try and meet every IOC member they could around the world. And my job as the general manager, and particularly to drive the, the sports side of the bid, was to attend every international Olympic sports competition and to meet with every international federation president and secretary general. So I literally travelled the world as well, visiting those people in their home cities all around the world, telling them about the Sydney bid and particularly what we could do for their sport. And it was a strategy that was, I have to say, very, very well received by the World Sporting Fraternity. And how did you find that situation going to maybe some sports that you perhaps had never really dealt with? I can't imagine that you were constantly dealing with the International Handball Federation, or the you know International Judo Federation, and, and kind of what is it like selling a city like Sydney to some of these sports where there's really no presence in not only Sydney but Australia, like, say, handball or judo, where there's not really a big scene in this side of the world? Uh, you're exactly right. and uh, I, We did it in two ways. One is that I drew upon... Uh, prominent people from within that sport, whether it existed in Australia, to come with me. For example, equestrian was a major challenge for us because you know, one of the great trivia stories of, of the Olympic movement is where were the equestrian events held in the 1956 Olympic Games in Melbourne? Yeah, no. Sydney. Uh, uh, Sweden, sorry. I've got the S words uh, switched around there. <laughs> because of our quarantine issues. Yeah. So, for example, that was absolutely essential for me to be able to convince the International Equestrian Federation that we could actually find a way to get the horses into Australia that was not going to penalise them. So I took, for example, Andrew Hoy, already that time a dual Olympic gold medalist, with me when we visited the, the World Equestrian Federation's Congress in South America, interestingly chaired at the time by Princess Anne. Wow. And we, we did everything we could to convince them that what our plan would be. But there were two other strategies probably that literally changed the way in which the bed was being seen. I mean, the challenge we face, Ben, every Australian organisation faces this, is that the distance from the rest of the world. Most people had never been to Australia, most of the voting fraternity, and there was a huge cost involved. Because in those days, each Olympic committee, each country had to pay for its athletes to travel to the Olympic Games. So, led by John Coates, and we did some remarkable work in this area, we created a formula where we ultimately said, right, Sydney is going to pay the cost for every athlete to travel to Sydney and to be accommodated. This was a $25 million exercise in 19, in, set up in the early 1990s, of course, and that would take the cost out of the hands of the NOCs, National Olympic Committees. And that was very, very warmly received. And interestingly, that's now the standard. That's the norm. Fascinating. And we, so, like, in winning over the Equestrian Federation, we not only said we would pay the cost of all the athletes, we actually agreed to pay the cost of all the horses wow. to come to Australia. We established four world ports in uh, in Frankfurt, in Los Angeles, in, in London, and another one in South America, where we brought all the competing horses together, and then in cooperation with the airlines and other 
very strategic operations, would transport them to Sydney at our cost, with the with the uh, yeah the, the, with the officials that look after them, the barriers, the, etc. Uh, and took all that cost away from them. So it was steps like that that made such a difference in convincing the world that we were ready to host the best ever Olympic Games. And just on that, reflecting on it, considering, as you're saying, that's sort of what it is done to this day. I mean, you've obviously left a pretty big impact in terms of just how the Olympics are done in general. I mean, that must be a pretty proud moment for yourself and the and the crew involved, that that's what's happened after the Games. It was. I think the, you know, the legacy is created by Sydney, are still rebound around the world as being the way forward for the Olympic Games. And of course, you know, uh, countries here you know, like particularly Athens tried very hard to emulate Sydney, certainly Beijing did. London was very much a model based on what Sydney had done. And so that's continued on. And I guess even today, I think uh, Sydney 2000 is still the model for most countries in terms of how the Olympic Games should be held and, and managed. In terms of all those managing the sports side of things and just everything that comes with an Olympic bid, what were the issues, say, around the scheduling of the Olympics? Because generally a summer Olympics is a Northern Hemisphere summer. We often see it July, August. Of course, Sydney ended up being in mid to late September into early October. Did that present challenges trying to sell it to the world that this is obviously going to be a little bit different in terms of a calendar scheduling for an Olympics? Huge challenges because you might recall that the... uh uh, the Melbourne Olympic Games were held in November, mm. but December of 1956. And it was highly unusual for the athletes of the world to have to compete then because that's traditionally the, the Northern Hemisphere winter and athletes are not interested in competing at that time of the year. It's usually reserved for the winter sports. So we had to find a way of, of finding the right dates. And that's why we looked at September and as late as we could in September the start of the 15th of September, as it turned out, a run for the two and a half weeks, which was just about burgeoning on as, as late as we could, at the same time, not being too cold in Sydney at that time, and still understanding that we would have good weather, which was important, and that the athletes of the world would embrace that. So that was a key uh, issue for us to address. And in particular, we had to get the the television broadcasters at the time, and led by NBC, who hold the rights to the USA, we had to get them on side because we had to make sure that we were not going to conflict with some of the world's major golf tournaments, the motor racing, uh, the football, World Cups, and things like this. So it was a very, very difficult balancing exercise where we spent a lot of time, effort, and energy finding out solutions and involving our friends around the world in giving us the best advice. It's so fascinating to think the power that some of these networks have. I remember in the year 2000 how the AFL had to shift their scheduling, of course, to avoid a conflict with the Olympics. And famously, NBC, of course, have the power to sort of change the swimming schedules so that if the Olympics are on this side of the world, they're getting at prime time and the finals the same morning. Was there much pressure from NBC that you remember to try and make us have the swimming during the day like we saw in Tokyo and sort of those other ones? And was Australia just like, no, nope, this, this is our sport. We're keeping this prime time for us. You can get up early and watch this, America. Yeah, no, incredible question because early on we had, as a, as a organising committee, so-called, uh, we decided that we needed, there were three key points in ensuring a successful Olympics. And uh, the then IOC president was very, Samaranth, Juan Antonio Samaranth was strong in this regard. The three factors were to have 
an outstanding opening ceremony. <clears throat> it absolutely had to be an outstanding opening ceremony, firstly. Second point, we needed to make sure that we had Australian success on day one to get the crowd and get the world behind us. And thirdly, of course, we had to rely on the weather. Well, that, that's outside our scope. But So that's why you saw that the men's 400 metres swimming was on day one. And thought yeah. that, that united the nation. Followed by the four by one, the, the smashing of guitars immediately after. Yeah. That's right. Of course, that morning from the steps of the Sydney Opera House was the women's triathlon yep. diving into Sydney Harbour, sending extraordinary pictures around the world. And that was all designed to create that interest and to meet the needs of the broadcasters, but also create the atmosphere necessary for successful home games. Amazing. You literally giving me goosebumps just thinking about that. I remember it vividly. And, and even just the opening ceremony, obviously we're fast-forwarding a little bit, but the countdown and everything that came with that, I think every person in Australia was glued to their TV sets ready for that. But it's just an absolutely iconic moment. I, I believe 18 different committees, though, you had to be in control of essentially during the bid. And obviously you're working with all elements of not just the sporting side of things. You've got government, you've got the AOC, you've got logistics, transportation, all this kind of stuff along those lines of that. I mean, how well did regular day go for you, Bob, sort of during this period? How many phone calls and meetings were you on at like nine o'clock in the morning before your day even started? Uh, they were exciting times. And of course, as we built SOCOG, which was the Sydney Organising Committee of the Olympic Games, it was the organising administrative body that became the challenge. Of course, as we brought more and more people on and we started off, after we won the bid, I was given the job of transferring and I took, I think it was 15 people from the Sydney bid team over to form the initial group within SOCOL. And then ultimately the, uh, the government appointed a CEO and a president, set up the organising committee, etc. But start for a very small group of 15 persons which grew to 3,500 staff wow. on the eve of the Games, and, of course, 50,000 volunteers and all the other contractors and the like. But they were long days, but incredibly exciting days where I have to say that the, the workforce was the most motivated workforce of people I have ever, ever worked with. And, uh, you know, you didn't last, you didn't last in the organisation if you weren't incredibly committed Highly enthusiastic and prepared to work hard for all hours of the day and night. It wasn't imagine. Yeah, I can absolutely imagine that. Obviously, at that period of time too, the, the whole Olympic bid process was very different to what it is now and a lot of rivalry between the, the bidding cities. I mean, you touched on sort of the rivalry between Sydney and Melbourne that sort of exists in this country. But of course, back then you're up against Beijing, Manchester, Berlin, Istanbul, and sort of the forerunners there were thought to be Beijing and, and Manchester. Sort of leading into that announcement in Monte Carlo and Monaco, how, just how intense was that rivalry? And did you sort of look at it at Beijing, Manchester, these are our two here, or was there much scope given to Berlin and Istanbul at the time? No, and again, uh... Yeah, we were very widely, wisely uh, managed by our strategy committee, led by John Coates, but under the, under the chairmanship of Bruce Baird. And we, we had some international experts, Olympic experts, from around the world who worked on Olympic Games and knew the Olympic movement well, and they were working for us. And they were sounding out the different uh, IOC members, Olympic committees, uh, the IOC staff, we became very, very good friends. Like I became very strong personal friends with the head of the games and a guy called Gilbert Gilbert Felly. And of course, um, our CEO, 
Sandy Holway from the bid became very, very strong friends with uh, Jack Rogg, who was the president yeah. of the IOC. No, he wasn't the president. He was the he president. He became president, of course, after one, Antonio, yeah. They called the Coordination Commission, which managed the day-to-day process. And so John Coates became very, very close to him, as did Bruce Baird. But, of course, yeah, one of the challenges managing the political side of things, and uh, that was a constant challenge within the Sydney Games, as it is in every Olympic Games, managing the politics, because you have to have government involved, but government often has different objectives to what the sporting community and the Olympic Committee has. I think Paul Keating famously wasn't too interested. Then he did become interested and uh, basically sold uh, all the other cities under the river, didn't he? Didn't he like rip into Beijing and all these other cities at a dinner with some IOC uh, people in Sydney Harbour from memory? <laughs> yes, he did. And importantly, you know, he, he came good with $5 million in, for the bid to support the... And the bid was essentially funded by the New South Wales government and, uh, and a whole stack of Australia's leading consortiums. And, of course, uh, Keating's wife at the time, Anita Keating, was a key part of our presentation team to the IOC members in Monaco on the 23rd of September. Yeah. She's an immigrant, having come from the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. She loved the Australian way of life, what we offered, et cetera, et cetera. So they played their part as well. We had uh, David Mason on a couple of years ago who sort of helped put together the bid video, of course, that, yes. that got Sydney over the line. And he discussed a lot about that night in Monaco and how we're sitting there with people like Kieran Perkins and just everything along those lines. I mean, do you remember that night, the lead-up to Monaco and how your nerves were feeling that night of the 23rd of September, 1993? I remember it extraordinarily well because uh, it had been a, a major planning exercise in itself. And, uh, I had spent uh, many visits in Monaco looking at, at uh, the organisation there and how we might structure things. So, you know, we took Kieran Perkins over there, who was a Olympic champion, and, he taught the kids in Monaco and other kids how to swim. We had Yvonne Corley, girl along with us. They're teaching young kids how to play tennis down in the main square of Monaco, really trying to create the image that Sydney was the place to be and there were a live, young, enthusiastic city and country that would welcome the, the world's Olympians with open arms. And uh, it, was, it was a long and well-planned exercise. I mean, we took more than 200 persons to Monaco for the presentations and the vote procedures from all walks of life in Australia and very many very, very prominent business people who supported the bid and politicians. So it was a wonderful exercise. How, how confident were you, Bob, that night? Did, did you think it was ours? I think we always we all thought that we're, I mean, the intelligence told us that we were going to win. However, it was going to be very, very, very close. We knew that Beijing was our challenge. Um, John Coates had done a remarkable job in gaining the support of the African nations. And he, together with Gough Whitlam, interestingly, Gough Whitlam travelled with John Coates and Barry Crosswhite, the then Secretary General of the Australian Committee. They travelled to Africa and in a small plane travelled to all of the countries of Africa that had an Olympic Committee and an IOC member. And along the way, John set up cooperation agreements with those countries through the IOC members. And if Sydney won, we would provide financial support for their athletes to help them improve their standing in world sport and be part of the Olympic Games. And that was a very important strategy 
that led to a, a solid block of votes coming to us from Africa. So we, we helped Eric the eel. Are you trying to say that Eric Musumini from uh, Equatorial Guinea in Sydney was basically because of, of the Sydney Olympics? We got him there. He probably was a beneficiary, that's for sure. Fantastic. Wow, that's that's incredible to, to hear that. That's absolutely amazing. And, th- and that obviously helped because ultimately Sydney win by a mere two votes, those famous that's words right. that, of course, I said. I, I mean, the elation, what were you feeling there and just everything that must have come about as soon as uh, Mr. Samarat said those words? Yeah, and because, you know, earlier on, it, he, he, first of all, we thanked the different competing nations. And, of course, by when he thanked Beijing. <laughs> they thought they won. <laughs> Beijing all thought that they had two names in the room. In yeah. Monica, all thought that Beijing had won the right. But then, of course, he was only thanking them for being a participant. And it went on to be Sydney. And I always remember because John Fay had become, of course, the uh, the chairman of our bid at that point of time because Nick Reiner had been forced to, to relinquish office as the Premier of New South Wales. And John Fay became the chair of the leader of our bid team. And he, together with uh, with Rod McGurk, of course, led the presentation with Coates and Bruce Baird and Yvonne Gurlagong and likes like that. So they, their, their, their efforts in engaging with the world's leaders was incredible. Did you... Well, I mean, I guess, were you aware of the reaction in Sydney? Because it's obviously a little bit of a different time. We don't have things like internet back then, so you can just jump on sort of like Instagram or all these sort of websites and that sort of stuff. It's obviously different than that. But were you aware of just how many people were around Circular Quay, Darling Harbour watching this? Or did it take a little bit for that to sort of filter back to you guys, just the reaction that was back here in Australia? No, we were certainly aware of the extraordinary interest. And, and of course, it was 4.28am in the morning. So it was a very, very difficult time. Uh, but... Yeah, there were thousands and thousands down at Circular Quay. Uh, the government and the bid had put on a remarkable event down at Circular Quay and other places. And I know from like my own family living out in Sydney's western suburbs, uh, had a large group of friends out in the Bankstown area where we were very involved in basketball. And they were all there together at that time of the morning, ready to celebrate one way or other. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, but it set off a chain of reaction, I think, Ben, across the country that was so well thought of and it embraced the Paralympics as well. So it was a whole new first in that regard that the Paralympics were going to be an important part. Of course. The Olympic Games festivities. And I have to say the federal government embraced you know, both it very well and, and importantly committed a lot of money to sports development. Uh, you know, John Howard was a leader in this regard, encouraged by John Coates. That meant that we had the strongest ever team form at the Olympics and Paralympics there, which brought great success and credit to the host nation. Which I think ultimately Mr. Howard got a lot of credit for, right? Because didn't he have a habit of every single gold medal we won, he was basically there. Like, he was just like a good luck charm to all our he gold was. medals during Sydney. <laughs> I think his intent was to get to every sport, and I think he did that. Yep. Because there were some remarkable moments. I mean, you know, I mean, people still talk about the night of 25th of September when um, Kathy Freeman won the gold medal. But that was probably the greatest night in track and field history. Yeah. So it was an extraordinary 10,000 metres uh, event won by Olga Roos. There was the uh, Michael Johnson, incredible runner from the, from the USA, win the 400 metres and other Australian success on that night. Yeah. And still talked about, well, it was great, you know, in the last two days where Kathy Freeman uh, worked and, and sat talked to the Matildas on the eve of their Women's World Cup in football. Absolutely. it's uh, It's gone on to so many memories. I remember Tatiana Gregorieva on that very yeah. night getting the silver, yes. of course, in the pole vault and everything along those lines. You, you obviously allow yourself probably a bit of time to celebrate, Bob, but then is it just a case of 
you you sweep up the party decorations, put the uh, the things away, and get to work because then you've got less than seven years to uh, put on the biggest show on earth. Uh, well, that's right. I mean, um, and it almost sounds like seven years was a long time, but I have to say that if we needed every day of that of that seven years to to reach the level what we wanted to, because not only did we need to plan a strategy of developing the venues at the least possible cost to the taxpayer, but at the same time provide events and opportunities to build interest in the community and particularly uh, we ultimately held like 40-odd test events, pre-Olympic events, uh, in every sport and discipline to allow us to test our procedures. And we needed to test things and make sure that everything was going to work perfectly. Just fast-forwarding then to the actual Olympics, as I touched on the introduction, you were the general manager of sport during those Olympics and obviously uh, were quite busy in terms of everything that you were doing. You obviously touched it. You loved it all. It was all fantastic. But can you sort of give us a real brief oversight of maybe what a day to you was like during those magical 16 days in September 2000? We had a, uh, uh, again, highly organised approach to it and uh, we had some wonderful people uh, leading uh, SOCOG and creating uh, yeah, from a business background as well. And so, I mean, yeah, our first meeting of the day would normally be 6 a.m. There'd be a strategy meeting. And then 5 at 7 a.m. would be a meeting of all of the principal leaders of the of the Games Organising Committee, followed by a meeting with the IOC and the, with the athletes, the world, and, and uh, uh, meetings within the Olympic Village. And then throughout the day, you know, they'd be constantly travelling to, to resolve issues and deal with problems, or just to be a at a venue and support the staff and the wonderful volunteers we had there. And that would continue right through till midnight that night because some sports, for example, wouldn't finish till nearly midnight. Mm. And before you knew it, you know, it'd be 6 a.m. starts again. So it was very um, full days, but wonderful days. I've got to ask, we saw the iconic mockumentary series in the lead up to the Olympics, the Games, of course, uh, very, very famous, ran for a couple of seasons. Did you see yourself as a bit of a Brian Dore, John Clark or Gina Riley kind of that? And what did you think of kind of just their take on sort of a, a satirical look at the organising of the Olympics? I have to say that uh, we, the, the staff, loved the series, but always wondered there had to be a mole somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the issues that they dealt with were so true. <laughs> But it was remarkably well done. And, uh, it, 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 again, it was another facet, I think, of the Games where so many different elements of our society addressed the Olympics and used it to broaden the appeal to Australians generally. Are you trying to tell me that the 100-metre track at Homebush was actually 98 metres long? Bob, is that what you're trying to secretly tell me? <laughs> but we have to think about now. Should we go back and measure it? <laughs> Just accidentally in case he actually done that too. Fantastic. I love, I love hearing that. Just, I mean, we're obviously seeing that right now the Olympic bid process is a lot different. We're sort of lost that pomp and pageantry. The IOC, of course, now sort of streamlined it, made it different, economic times. We, we know the reasons behind it. We saw Brisbane win, of course, a couple of years ago, which is fantastic for Australia. And I'll get your thoughts on that in a moment. But we obviously didn't see the ultimate fanfare that we saw for Sydney, uh, you know, nearly 30 years earlier. Despite why we do it nowadays and why we do the Olympic bid, did you sort of miss that a little bit? Do you, do you kind of wish we had that sort of on the eve of the Tokyo Olympics, Brisbane party time like we had in Sydney and bring back that pomp and pageantry we had in 93? Yeah, I think, uh, Ben, I think that reflects 
uh, obviously the world today and how we've moved on. I mean, today, at the time, the Sydney bid cost something in the order of about 27 million Australian dollars at, at dollars of those days, of which, you know, federal state government committed 15 million, federal government 5 million, our business community across Australia committed another probably 10 million, and we did a lot of fundraising. We had some extraordinary people leading our fundraising programs as well. So all that was necessary, but to keep the bid costs down as well. Um, times that, and in those days, we were allowed, as you know, to bring IOC members to Sydney, which is now no longer allowed. And of course, along the way, regrettably, there are those cities and those IOC members that have not acted very responsibly in, in how they have addressed the the opportunities about hosting Olympic Games would come. So there's been some very difficult scenarios and bidding cities and people being found wanting and actually facing legal challenges and even ending up in jail in some cases for misrepresenting the uh, the public and misrepresenting the government, etc. So the IOC, quite correctly, under the leadership of Thomas Buck, the current president, moved in the right direction to try and defuse those whole issues by reducing the cost of bidding, but also making sure that they try and take the political elements out of it and ending up with the best result for the athletes. And that, that's and reducing costs on the host city. How did you find that then being on the other side of that fence for 2004 and 2008 and sort of working with those evaluation committees um, in helping, sorry, 2008 and 2012 and sort of helping the those cities be chosen? Yeah, I think the, uh, the lessons of Sydney were very strong in that regard. And uh, so my ability to be able to have a role with the IOC, which I enjoyed enormously as a, uh, a games consultant, I suppose you'd call me, in, in terms of the uh, the bid selection, the game selection for 2008 and 2012, meant that we could try and, re- try and encourage bidding cities to reduce <coughs> expensive uh, propositions, to look at how... You know, comes down to things like how best do you use a venue? Can you use one venue for two sports? How do you use an existing venue and not have to build a new venue? And I think a lot of very good lessons came out of Sydney in that regard, which, of course, the IOC have now adopted very well. Uh, London followed the Sydney model very closely and were regarded as highly successful games. And importantly, one of the great legacies, Ben, has been that many, many people who have worked and involved in the Sydney Olympics have continued on assisting and working around the world in different organisations, right up to helping put the Brisbane 2030 yeah. bid together. And that's been an important contribution to the Olympic movement in the world. Because it's a very unique angle too with Brisbane is that for a lot of people to now have two Olympics in our own country in a lifetime, you know, there was, what, a 44-year gap between Melbourne and Sydney, and now there'll only be a 32-year gap between Sydney and Brisbane. So you kind of see that. It's still very fresh on the minds for everybody. And it's just also that added time now, I guess, we've got to prepare for Brisbane. You know, a, a, what, a, an 11-year period it was at the time of announcement to when it will be on. We're now obviously less than that, nine years away now. But it's sort of a, a very unique time in Australia for the Olympics. Yes, and uh, importantly, I mean, a lot of people thought there was probably... Uh, wrong to allow that much time or to have 11 years at their disposal. But it appears to me, and I'm very much an arm's length to the Brisbane organisation, is that they are moving in the right direction. I mean, they're being led by 
you know, expertise that was born and bred through the Sydney Olympic Games and to have someone like John Coates there helping steer their way as well. <clears throat> and uh, Brisbane, I think, will be a very, very successful games in that regard. And, and, of course, they're heading in the right direction because they're trying to use existing venues. Uh, you see that the Olympic movement has moved in a way which now allows more decentralised venues to be used. So Brisbane will have some events being played on the, you know, the Sunshine Coast, not just the Brisbane and the Gold Coast, but and even as far north probably as Townsville and Cairns. So mm. good models who are pursue. And also, technically, I like to keep saying, Bob, Australia's first ever Winter Olympics, because, of course, they will be held during the winter months in Australia, not like September, October or November as we have for our previous Olympics. I guess the climate for Brisbane's a little bit different to Sydney and Melbourne. But uh, for those who said we can never host a Winter Olympics, Bob, well, we, we correct you. We are hosting a Winter Olympics. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Well, and of course, as you would know, Ben, and Australians do very, very well in the winter sports. I mean, we have this Olympic Winter Institute, which helps our athletes at an extraordinary level of expertise around the world for a country that has very, very little snow. Yeah, I mean, I, we're massive fan fans of the uh, Winter Olympics. I, I secretly like to say, Bob, deep down, I think I enjoy the winters a little bit more, but that's just because of the unique aspect of those sports we don't see in this country. You've attended a few Winter Olympics. What sort of yeah. you take when you go to seeing how a Winter Olympics is put together compared to a Summer Olympics? Well, the, again, I mean, the organisational principles are all the same. It's about maximising the use of the existing venues, trying to ensure that environmental considerations are managed properly. Uh, but also building the opportunity for the city and the surrounding areas to be able to participate in the game. So, yeah, and the legacy time was very fortunate. I was able to, uh, during our process, soon after we'd won the bid, I went to Lillehammer in Norway for the 94 uh, Winter Games. We learned a lot from them. We learned a lot from, from Salt Lake City. We learned a lot from the, uh, Lugano in 1998. And, again, as, as well as visiting world sporting events. We also attended those sorts of games. So the winter games were a good learning expertise for us as well. You're involved in the Australian Youth Olympic Festival. And now we've also, of course, seen the introduction of the Youth Olympic Games since 2010. How important do you think an event like the Youth Olympics is to not only progressing athletes forward and giving them a bit of a taste of an Olympics, but maybe for a city, smaller cities that we're seeing get a taste of hosting the Olympics and kind of how that can translate into a model for sort of a full Olympics for cities such as that moving forward. Yeah, and again, uh, John Coates, one of the great legacies that John created for the Sydney Olympics was the Australian Olympic Committee to actually organise and host uh, the Australian Youth Olympic Games, which he did then for the next, like, I think, four editions. And that was my job initially with the Australian Olympic Committee after the Sydney Games to organise those. And it was about... And then, of course, the IOC took it upon themselves to then have the World Youth Olympic Games. Mm. I was fortunate to attend the first in Singapore, 2010. And it's about giving the youth of the world, teenagers, an opportunity to come together in an Olympic-type environment in a dramatically reduced level of cost and level of service, but were nevertheless exposed to the ideals of the Olympic movement and help them in their way forward as to how they might continue as an athlete and how they might one day become an Olympian in their own right. So it's been a very strong movement. Uh, many countries now are looking at hosting the Youth Olympic Games because that's more within their financial opportunities. Well, I just want to add one thing on that, 
Bob, is that uh, back in the day, I don't know if you ever remember it or heard of it. I'm not offended if you haven't. Uh, I was a bit of a driving force behind Hobart trying to get the Olympics once. And uh, sadly, obviously, it might have been a bit out of our uh, wheelhouse back in the day. But then the Youth Olympics happened. So just want to say, if you've got any connections with John or anybody else, uh, just pass it on if Australia wants to host the Youth Olympics in the future. Hobart, we're getting a brand new stadium. So I'm just saying it could be in, uh, in our vicinity in a few years' time, potentially. Yes, no, for sure. And you know, Tasmania's produced a lot of uh, great Olympians and athletes over the years, and they've, and they've got some uh, some wonderful venues down there. I mean, the Launceston Cycling Track was one which yeah. was a great success for many years. Of course, uh, the, the, the rowing course down there is extraordinarily well regarded around the world and many other facets of sport. Absolutely. Lake Barrington, fantastic yeah. venue down there as yeah. well. And, of course, I just want to quickly touch on your basketball and the jack jumpers. We're doing okay down there at the moment as well. But just you obviously, as I mentioned at the top there, manager of uh, the Boomers back in 1984, uh, helped uh, kind of find the NBL. I mean, you're, you're former FIBA president, Bob. There's a lot to talk about basketball. But what Tokyo, bronze medal for the Boomers. I mean, that must have been a pretty special moment for you to be able to, to witness that. Uh, that was extraordinary. I mean, I didn't attend Tokyo, but I watched it at home in the, in the, uh, in the bronze medal match. As we counted down the last two or three minutes, I sat in my lounge room in Granada where I lived, tears coming out down my eyes, was uh, watching the success because I knew all those guys that had been involved with the, uh, the Paddy Mills, the Joe Ingalls, the, the Delanovas, had been part of our sport for so long. And we'd finished fourth on so many occasions in recent times and just couldn't quite get over the hump. So to do that was extraordinary. And uh, I, I'm highly excited forward to the... Uh, forthcoming FIBA World Cup in the Philippines and uh, in Japan, which I'll be attending and see the success of Australians continue in that regard. Beautiful. Love to hear it. Uh, also, obviously, still nine years away, but if someone tapped you on the shoulder, Bob, and was like, we'd like your input, we'd like your involvement in the Brisbane Olympics, would you would you put your hand up or are you happily retired? <laughs> oh, yes. Well, uh, I'm happily retired, but I, I retain a very, very strong interest in what we're doing in sport across Australia. And uh, always, always willing and happy to help. And I, I continue to have an involvement in basketball in this country, so that pleases me greatly as well. And finally, is there any sort of plans at the moment? We're recording this obviously a little bit before the 23rd of September, but we're hearing this on the 23rd of September. But is there any plans afoot for some of the gang to get back together, maybe get out there at like 4.20 in the morning to <laughs> recreate that moment 30 years prior? <laughs> I know that uh, Rod McGeoch, uh, who was our extraordinary CEO of the uh, Sydney Bid, has been contemplating and working with some people about how we might celebrate that occasion. And, of course, uh, Bruce Baird is still alive and well as the, uh, the minister responsible for for the Sydney bid, and he was an extraordinary influence. And he remains committed to uh, celebrating in a way as well. So I'm sure something will happen on that day. What I'm not sure yet. Beautiful. Well, we look forward to hearing and seeing if that happens. Bob, it has been an absolute honour to be able to have you on the show today to take a trip down memory lane, give us a real insight into a bid and, and how Sydney came together and everything along those lines and talk about your absolutely amazing career that you've had involved within the Olympics over the years. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time on the show today. Thank you, Ben. Uh, we can all be very proud that Australia is a remarkable Olympic nation. You know, there's only three other countries that have hosted the number of Olympic Games we have, so we're a pretty, pretty esteemed uh, uh, atmosphere. A huge thanks to Bob for his time on this show. An 
absolute honor to learn all about those aspects of the Sydney Olympic bids and bids in general's involvement with the IOC and everything along those lines. Learning about having to go to all the sporting federations, essentially, to talk to them about Sydney. Equestrian, of course, famously not in the 56 Olympics in Australia, held in Stockholm in Sweden. Got my S word right that time around. And just learning about the ins and outs of what that takes. Loved hearing his thoughts on the games, the parody show that was in the lead up to the Sydney Olympics as well. And throwing in a special note there for the Hobart Olympics as well. So, uh, I'll take that. I'll take that as a support. I'll take that always as a support. But massive, massive thanks there to Bob for giving us his time to go down those memories and learn everything about that. And if you're listening to this on the day, happy 30th anniversary for the Sydney Olympic bid. Of course, Jared and I, we're going to maybe go down a circular key at like four o'clock in the morning to celebrate, see if anybody else is recreating that famous moment. But if you're still on the Olympic bid train and you're learning about the Sydney Olympics and wanting to celebrate this occasion, if you go to our episode yesterday, Rick Birch, the creative director, of course, behind the Sydney Olympic opening ceremony and other Olympic opening ceremonies too, heavily involved in so many Olympics over the years. It was a fantastic chat. That is available now, of course. And if you want to see it as well as listen to it, YouTube, you can see this one, you can see Rick's one and all of our other interviews as well on there to subscribe to that coming your way through that channel. And over the coming weeks, we've got some fantastic content still to come on Off the Podium. Next episode, we're going back to our opening ceremony review series. It's been a few months and we're going back to Calgary, 1988. Now, perfect timing that we had a creative director of opening ceremonies on the show yesterday because we're going to go look at another opening ceremony. So Colin gets a chance to talk about the first Canadian Olympics that uh, he was alive for, essentially. And I'll be honest with you, it's an opening ceremony I've never seen in full. I've seen highlights of it, but I've never seen in full. So I'm excited for uh, myself, Jared, and Colin to sit down and give our unique take over that. Then the week after... You want a big interview, ladies and gentlemen. You are getting a big interview. We haven't given this away yet, but we've teased enough of this that maybe you're getting closer and closer. We will reveal at the end of next week who it is, but I want to give you a bit of a taste. He's a two-time Olympian in a winter sport. He's from the United States of America, and he's so iconic now in modern society that he maybe isn't even really known as Olympian. He's just an entertainment face. He's had his own reality TV show. He's had a book. He's been in movies. He's had movie characters based on him. And he has a foot involved in another one of our podcasts that we do in our podcast grouping, Eurovision. He's a big Eurovision guy. And the country he's from, that's a rarity. Just a bit of a rarity. He's an icon of not only his sport, the Olympics, but entertainment in general and life in general. He's just an icon. Let's just leave it at that. That is coming your way in a couple of weeks. It's one of the biggest interviews we've ever had on this show. And I will say as well, it's one of the longest interviews we've had on this show. It's an amazing interview. You will not want to miss it. We will reveal who that is next week on the show. And then after that, we've got another interview to bring you as well with somebody who was at the Sydney Olympics, if you don't mind. So there's something for you, another bit of a teaser. And post that, we will be getting into our coverage of our first ever Pan Am Games. Santiago 2023 is happening. We will be bringing you weekly coverage of those games. Very, very excited. Colin gets to drive that one. He's got the keys to the off-the-podium car, and he will be driving that one for a month as we learn a little bit more about the Pan Am Games. Of course, we've got several athletes who have been on the show who will be competing at the Pan Am Games, so we'll keep a close eye on how they're doing. And for Jared and myself being on the other side of the world to that region, we're going to find it a bit of a challenge to be able to watch them, but we will find a way. We will always like to find a way. To quote a great man, life uh, finds a way.
there you go. I'm going to leave you with a Jeff Goldblum quote. Thanks again to Bob for joining us. Thanks to Rick yesterday for joining us. And let us know, were you around Circular Quay or Darling Harbour back in 1993 when Sydney was announced as the winner of those Olympic Games? Do you remember going to Sydney in 2000? We want to hear your thoughts. Hit us up on social media. Search for Off The Podium. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're coming soon to TikTok. I'm just saying that right now. Not even sure at the time of this being released if we're already on TikTok, but we're, we're caving. We're going the route of the way the kids like to watch shit, and we are going to get TikTok. So stay tuned for Off The Podium TikTok, and also stay tuned to the podcast channels. Wherever you get your podcast from, you can download our show. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it, we're on it. Subscribe, leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear what you think. Shout out again to the Birmingham Bull, to Jason Momoa, to, to Meatloaf. Just a special mention to remember everybody that Paris exists. I really am going to write down all these closings down eventually and it will be hilarious the next time I read these. I promise you that. Thanks again to Bob. Thanks for listening to Off the Podium. My name is Ben and we will speak to you next time. <laughs>